Good evening, church. It is uh, great to be here. Um, if you will open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and tonight's passage we'll be reading from 28 to 3-3. So 1 John chapter 2, 28 to 3-3, and the title of the sermon is Living in Hope, Anticipating Christ's Return. And if you are able, please rise for the reading of God's word. In 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 28, it reads, So now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And in everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let's go to our Lord God in prayer once again. Dear Lord, we are we're thankful that you have given us this day. You have given us this time, this evening, to go through your word. Lord, For I just want to say, Lord, if cause I, I just want to come at this with a pure heart with clean hands. And I just ask you, Father, if, if there's anything that I have sinned against you, Lord, I just ask you, Father, just to forgive me. Lord, I just want to be able to use this time to glorify your name. I just want people to know of your greatness, your great love, as John puts it in verse 3. A living hope that is in all believers. And I just pray, Father, that this hope will permeate to all, to everyone. Because a day will come when you will return. And I want to be able to see all the people of the world, Lord. All. Linked, armed, arms and arms, Lord, just to be able to say, to stand in confidence in you. I don't know, there's so much that I just want to say, but I really pray, Father, that this message of hope will not disappear in the hearts who hear this. Lord, search my heart. Remove me. May your name be glorified. We all love you, and we appreciate all that you have done now and all that you continue to do and everything that you have done in the past. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in your son, Jesus Christ's name, and all the God's people say, amen. amen. You may be seated. Church, the, the central idea of this passage is that Christian hope is cultivated by remaining in Christ Jesus. 
Let me repeat that. That Christian hope is cultivated by remaining in Christ Jesus. So what exactly does it mean to have hope? To kind of get your minds thinking about that. What exactly does it mean to have hope? Is it simply wishful thinking or blind optimism? No. Hope goes far beyond that. It is a confident expectation, a belief that something good awaits us on the horizon. It is the unwavering conviction that even in the darkest of times, a glimmer of light can guide us towards a better tomorrow. Imagine a world where hope is not just a fleeting wish, but a steadfast belief that propels us forward. You see, in, in, in 1 John chapter 2, 28 down to 3, 3, hope becomes the foundation of our Christian existence, rooted in confident expectation of something to happen. In this passage, the Apostle John presents us with a call to remain in Christ, reminding us of our true identity as children of God and inspiring us to have a confident expectation of our future. This passage reminds Christians of our future hope in Christ's return and the transformation we will experience as children of God. It assures us of our salvation. It encourages us to persevere and motivates us to live holy lives. I stand before you this evening to shed light on the topic that resonates deeply within us. Hope. Hope. Hope is not merely an abstract concept or a fickle desire. It is a powerful force that can transform our lives and shape our future. The Apostle John wrote this epistle for a reason, and that reason is to restore hope in the lives of believers during his error. False teachers had entered the church at the time of this writing, and John writes to Christians to keep them safe from false teaching by reminding them of what it truly means to have faith in Christ, which is tightly, which is tightly linked to fellowship with God and his people. This text this text provides hope for all Christians that Christ Jesus will return to save his children. The first step to understanding this Christian hope is comprehending our relationship with Christ, uh, of Christ Jesus that is found in verse 28 here. As John says here, he says, so now little children, referring to those who have put their faith and trust in the Christ and those who live in continuing repentance. He is speaking to, the, uh, to us. We are his children. And John goes on to say, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, I just want to start with the phrase when he appears, because this is very important. The phrase, uh, the phrase when he appears is significant because it emphasizes the future aspect of Jesus' return. It highlights that Jesus' return will be a visible and public event rather than a secret or hidden one. You see, the Apostle John really brings up a challenging image by using the phrase, when he appears. You see, it is an image that there will be consequences for all peoples on the earth. Jesus' second coming will be accompanied by a final judgment. This will be an event where Jesus will separate the righteous from the unrighteous and he will assign awards or, and, and punishments based on really our actions here on the earth. 
The righteous will be rewarded with eternal life in the presence of God, while the unrighteous will face eternal separation from God, eternal punishment. With that said, the question we need to ask ourselves is, who will be rewarded with eternal life and who will face eternal separation? Well, the Apostle John gives us that answer to that question with the phrase, remain in him. Remain in him. The phrase remain in him is a call to persevere in the faith and to continue to remain in Jesus. It is not a one-time event, but a lifelong process of remaining in him. This is evident from the present tense of the Greek verb meno. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but I did the best I can. Which is translated as remain, to dwell with. The verb is in the, is in the uh, uh, imperative mood, mood indicating a command or exhortation. So what exactly is John is pleading with us or trying to exhort us and and encouraging us or urging us to do is to remain in him. In other words, what John is saying is like, look, remain in Jesus Christ. Don't let anything or anyone break that relationship apart. Continue to remain in him. The concept of remaining in Jesus is not, is, is, not a new, is not new in John's writings. So, for instance, in John, uh, in the Gospel of John, in uh, chapter 15, verses 4, uh, 4 and 5, let me read this. Jesus says, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, produces much fruit, because you cannot do anything without me. It is here that Jesus emphasizes the importance of remaining in him to bear fruit and to live a life that is pleasing to God. John once again, emphasizes the, the importance of remaining in Christ to, to nurture and to maintain our confident expectations. Remaining in him, in its essence, involves a persistent, a intimate communion with God, which manifests in obedience to his commandments. The phrase, remain in him, reflects Jesus' desire, Jesus' desire for a personal and intimate relationship with his children, with his followers. And that through this ongoing relationship, believers can experience steadfast confidence in God's faithfulness and their eternal destination. (coughs) Excuse me. The rest of verse 28 gives us that assurance. As as John goes on to say that that those who put their faith and trust into Christ, those who believe upon upon Christ, and those who remain in in Christ will have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. You see, by remaining in Christ, believers can experience a, a, a deep, a deep sense of security and confidence, knowing that they are aligned with God's will. And this knowledge brings confidence and hope. Please do not let this phrase escape your heart, your mind on this. 
Because this is the crux of, of really this, 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 uh, 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 of the passage that we're going through. It is the crux when it comes to verses 29, when it comes to verses 3-1, when it comes to verse 3-2 and 3-3. It is the foundation. So the question we got to ask ourselves as of right now, how can Christians know for sure that they are connected to the vine that is referenced in John, in the Gospel of John 15, 4 through 5? What tangible proof do we have that we are God's children? Well, verse 29 tells us, it reads that if you know that he is righteous, meaning Jesus Christ, you know this as well, that everyone who does what is right has been what? Born of him. Born of him. Now, the significance of this verse lies in its emphasis on the importance of living a life of obedience to God's commands to be born of God and have eternal life. Going back to the Gospel of John, in chapter 14, verse 15, it is here that Jesus says, he says, look, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. By saying, if you love me, Jesus is emphasizing the connection between love and obedience. He says that true love for him is demonstrated through obedience to his commands. This implies that love for Jesus should not be merely expressed through words or emotions, but should be accompanied by what? By actions that, it, that is aligned with his teachings, that, it, that is in alignment with his will. This verse also highlights the shared nature of the relationship between Jesus and his followers. Love and obedience are intertwined with one leading to the other. When individuals genuinely, genuinely love Jesus, they will naturally desire to obey him. And obedience to his commands strengthens and deepens their love for him. By emphasizing this connection between love and obedience... It is here that Jesus invites his followers into what? A close bond with him. A close bond with him. And this bond is not based on fear or obligation, but on a, genuinely, a genuine affection and devotion towards him. This is not out of fear. Verse 29 emphasizes that, that doing what is right is a sign of being born of God. And that obedience to God's commands is a, uh, is a fundamental aspect of living a life of faith. So you may be asking the question, it's okay, well, well, what are the signs of doing what is right that proves that we are children of God, that we have been born of him? Well, let me give you three, spirit, uh, three elements one is character. Two is relationships. And then three is relationship with God. When I talk about character, it's, there's something that is working within us as individual uh, believers of Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 8 through 26, it says, when it comes to character, is that we foster characteristics and virtue that, that Christ calls us to, right? 
that we are being led by the Spirit, right? And the Spirit is going to exuberate within us love, joy, peace, right? Self-control. Those are tangibles. That we seek to live disciplined lives characterized by, once again, self-control and integrity, which we find in Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Relationships. When it comes to relationships, that we accept and appreciate each other's uniqueness and hold each other mutually accountable, which we find in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. And that we encourage each other as we meet, as we gather here in the church as saints, right? That we continue to encourage each other, which we find in Hebrews 10.25. And that we are to serve and help each other, which we find in Romans 15.1-2. through 2. Right? This is not a call that we get to live our lives the way that we want to live, right? There's a reason why God has established a church. There's a reason why God has established pastors, Right. He's established people with many gifts to to take place in his church. But not only that, but we're called to love one another. Right. To encourage one another, to help each other out. If we're off doing our own thing and being isolated from the church, are we really living up to God's commandments? Are we really producing the fruits in which the Holy really comes out to? Are we really being led by the Holy Spirit? Last is relationship with God. Is that we embrace God with our uh, uh, we we embrace God as our loving Creator and respond to His love with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. In Mark chapter twelve verses thirty, that we continue to embrace Him. We encourage the practice of spiritual disciplines when it comes to prayer, meditation, and service so that our faith matures and our love, and our love for, uh, of God deepens, which we find in 1 Corinthians 9 through, uh, to, uh, chapter 9, 24 to 27. Let me kind of back up here to talk about meditation because I know Steve kind of hit on, th- hit on this in his sermon earlier. That meditation is not Easter meditation that we empty ourselves. The biblical meditation, a Christian meditation, is that we fill ourselves with God's word, right? And that we continue to chew on that every second of the day. Is that we should not be taking, taking a break from, from meditating on God's word. But we continue to chew on it, right? Because that's how we grow in, in, in maturity. But it is here with, with those three, three spirits that, that Jesus requires all his children to remain in obedience to his teachings and to his word. Jesus expects his children to be transformed in word, thought, and deed. His children are to love and appreciate one another and also to grow in maturity under the guidance of Jesus. Jesus expects his children to persevere for his name's sake. But I just want to back up here because we cannot persevere in Jesus' name's sake if we're all, once again, if we're off in our own isolated world. If we're not in studying his word or meditating on his word. We will not persevere. We will crumble quick, quickly. And let me say this when it comes to relationship among the saints. Because I think this is very important. Because it is awful to hear when you hear people of God have a distrust in other people of God. And they let that fester. 
They hold that in and they hold it against them. Let me tell you this, you are sinning before the almighty God because God has called us to what? To love one another. We are called to make things right. We are called to be in relationship with one another because it would be a shame if Christ were to come right now and he sees his children fighting amongst amongst themselves. So if you have anything against your brother and sister, I ask you and, and and I plead with you, you need to go make that right. And you need to make that right as soon as possible. There is no waiting. Oh, I just need to be. No, 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 no. Don't let the sun go down if, if you're in anger. I digress. Moving on to verses three. Uh, sorry, chapter three. I'm going to read verses one and two. And I really just want to highlight verses one and two is this is this is the, the benefits of God's love, the benefits of of being his child. It reads, see what great of love the father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are, we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is, as he is. Church, to really get a full comprehension of verse 1, I believe we must start here at verse 2. Because even though that we are God's children, we don't fully comprehend what it means to be God's children, a child of God. In verse 2, the Apostle John wrote something that is very powerful. It is very powerful. He goes on to say, dear friends, children of God, those who have put their faith and trust in in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that we are God's children now. So he's talking, so, so meaning that, that God is talking to his children. And he goes on to say, what we will be has not yet been revealed, has not been revealed. To help us understand that phrase and what we will be has not yet been revealed, I want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18, it reads that we all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. The verse begins with the phrase, we all, indicating that it applies to all believers in Christ. Moving on to the next phrase, when he goes on to say, with unveiled faces, it, re- it, it refers to the removal of a symbolic veil that obstructs one's understanding and perception. In, in the biblical context, this veil represents a spiritual blindness or ignorance. Um, yeah, ignorance. And by removing this veil, believers can see and understand the truth of God's glory. The next part of the verse states that believers are beholding, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. This metaphor suggests that believers can see and reflect God's glory in their lives. The mirror represents a clear reflection or image indicating the believers have a direct or clear view of God's glory. 
the verse goes on to describe the process of transformation. It states that believers are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory. This transformation is understood as a progressive change or growth in conformity to the image of Christ. As believers continue to behold God's glory and reflect in their lives, they are gradually transformed into what? Into his likeness. And in the final, uh, 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 the final part of the verse points to uh, the trans points points to this transformation to the work of the Holy Spirit. As it states this, that transformation occurs um, when he uses the phrase that this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that plays a vital role in sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Christ. It is through the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit that believers can undergo this transformation. The significance of Second Corinthians here lies in its emphasis on the transformative power of God's glory and the role of the Holy Spirit in the process. It highlights the believer's journey of spiritual growth and conformity uh, to the image of Christ. This verse encouraged believers to, continue, to continually seek God's presence and behold his glory and allow the Holy Spirit to work in their lives on, on, on this ongoing transformation. So going back to the Apostle John here, because uh, the Apostle John, I guess similarly, uh, says the same message when it comes to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, when it comes to 3-2 here in 1 John. Because verse 2 in chapter 3, it acknowledged that there is a future aspect to the believer's identity and destiny. It states that, what we, what we will be has not yet been revealed. This implies that there is a future transformation awaiting believers. A future transformation awaiting believers, which will be fully realized when Christ appears, when he appears. This transformation refers to the glorification of believers. And where, uh, excuse me, where they will be made like Christ in their resurrected bodies. In their resurrected bodies. And Excuse me. And furthermore, this verse emphasizes the hope and assurance that believers have in their future transformation. It states that we know that when he appears, we would be like him. This assurance is rooted in the fact that believers will see Christ as he truly is. This vision of Christ will bring about complete conformity to his likeness, uh, to his image and likeness. You see that when Christ returns, right? Because right now we're going through the sanctification process. And in this process, there is a, a wrestling of, 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 of really of, of two spirits. The spirit of God, which is the Holy Spirit that can fix the world of sins. Right. And then we got our human desire. I said a human spirit. Right. And our spirit, what? Only desires to do the opposite of what God tells us to do. So we want to live a life that is uh, contrary to God's word. And so right now we're in the sanctification process, right? We're in this process of changing. But what John is getting at here is like, look, he's like, look, there's not going to be any more battling. There's not going to be no more wrestling with sin. We're going to be in glorified bodies, meaning that sin is going to be eradicated. No longer will we have to battle sin no more. You see, the believer's current identity as a child of God points to a future transformation into the likeness of Christ. 
and emphasizes the believer's hope and trust in their final destination. Right? Having said that, I want us now to swing back to verse 1. And I want you to get this picture in, in your mind here. Because it is here in this verse that John is expressing excitement. There is excitement behind verse 1 here. And that excitement is this. He says, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. There's an excitement about that. The reason the world does not know is because it didn't know him. Let me just start with the phrase, the, 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 the great love, which highlights the depth and magnitude of God's love towards his children. It signifies that this love is not an ordinary or limited uh, love, but rather an abundant and overflowing love. Right? This passage reveals uh, really just several pieces of evidence that demonstrate his deep love for his children. First, John emphasizes that God's love is not merely, su- uh, uh, not merely sufficient, but abundant beyond measure. This demonstrates, uh, excuse me, this demonstrates the depth of God's affection for his children. Second is that John highlights the privilege bestowed upon believers by calling us, by calling us what? God, that we're children of God, God's children. This title uh, signifies a special relationship with the creator of the universe and implies a sense of intimacy, care, and protection by By adopting believers into his family, God shows his deep love and desire to have a personal relationship with his children. I don't think you guys get it. Let me go a little bit deeper on how deep God's love is for his children, for us. Let me start with this. A place of perfect fellowship with God. That Christians will experience an intimate and eternal fellowship with God in a new heaven and a new earth, which we find in Revelations 21.3, which states, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be will be with them and be their God. You see, this verse emphasizes that God dwelt amongst his people, indicating a close relationship between God and believers. That would be for all eternity. There would be nothing that will separate that love. As we know, when we go to John, he says, look, he's like, look, there's nothing on this earth that can ever snatch you out of my hands. But he doesn't stop there. His love is overflowing. It's full of abundance. He goes on, and I, and I put this, uh, I, I phrase it as this, or I titled this as this. A place of eternal joy and peace. You see, the new heaven and the new earth are described as places where, we will, where there will be no more pain, sorrow, or death. As we see in Revelations 21.4, it reads that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the, uh, for the old order of things have passed away. This verse here tells Christians that we will experience everlasting joy and peace in this, in this new realm, free from all forms of suffering, free from all suffering. 
So those who put their, their hope in Christ, that put their, their, their faith and love in Christ and live in, 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 in repentance, those who remain in him, there will be no more suffering. Just get, look what happened to Israel. All the pain, all the suffering that has taken place. I just want to say this because our hope is so misguided as believers. Because if we think that man can make peace with man, we're fooling ourselves. Only God can make peace. And as long as we continue to live in this world, we will always be disappointed. The hope in man, once again, when it comes to hope, is nothing but a wishful thinking. Oh, I hope that this peace treaty will last. I hope that there will be no more fighting, that there wouldn't be no more killing. But we see we're disappointed once again. Sorry, I got a little bit sidetracked there. Other thing I want to talk about when it comes to God's great love for his children is that there's a, a place of perfect holiness and righteousness. You see, in a new heaven and a new earth, Christians will dwell in a, in a state of perfect holiness and righteousness. In Revelations uh, in 21, 27, it declares that nothing impure will, will, will ever enter, in, will never enter it, meaning the city. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the, in the Lamb's book of life. This verse implies that only those who have been redeemed by the, by the sacrifice of Christ Jesus and have accepted and put their faith and trust in him as Lord and Savior will be a part of this new creation. And his love doesn't just stop there. I'm going to keep going because it needs to be mentioned here. Because when it comes to the imperishable bodies, when it comes to the resurrected bodies, you see, when it comes to the resurrected bodies, we will no longer be subject to, uh, to decay or death. There will, we, uh, excuse me, we will be transformed into the, uh, an eternal state where there will be no longer, no longer susceptible to illness, aging, or any form of physical disorientation. When it comes to the resurrected body, we will be raised in glory. That we will possess a, a radiant and, 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 and majestic appearance, reflecting the divine glory of God. Believers will experience a heightened sense of, of beauty and splendor in the, in the resurrected state. And it doesn't stop there. There's a spiritual nature when it comes to the resurrected body that we will, we will be spiritual rather than the natural ones. This does not mean that, there will, uh, that we will be purely spirit, spiritual or... Um, I'm going to skip that part. <laughs> so I, I kind of wrote that um, wrong. But it doesn't stop there. How many of us like to go to the beaches the most beautiful beaches that the earth has to offer. To be able to hike the most beautiful mountains, to go through the, the forest, to, to go and observe the animals, to go to the Grand Canyon, to be able to look at the stars at the night and to look at the moon. How many of us 
are, are, are marveled by how big the universe is. Well, let me tell you this, believer. Those things that we find so beautiful, everything that we find so captivating, so the, the things that we would like to do, heaven is going to be far greater than that. It's going to be far greater than that. You see, this is why John is so excited here. See how great the love the Father is to his children. His love just keeps pouring and pouring. He continues to give and give and give. And I appreciate what Steve had to say this morning when it came to the sermon. It's just like, how much are we giving? Are we really giving with all of our hearts and our soul and our minds just as much as God has given to us? God's love just keeps pouring and keeps pouring. In addition to these general characteristics, when it comes to resurrected bodies, I just, let me just read Philippians 3.21. Paul writes, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This indicates that the resurrected bodies will conform to the likeness of, of Christ Jesus' glorious bodies. So once again, I'm just trying to highlight that, look, we don't have to deal with sin anymore. We won't have to worry about it. We don't have to worry about the effects of it. We don't have to worry about depression anymore. We don't have to worry about anxiety anymore. We don't have to worry about being angry with one another So the question, I just, I really got to, I think all of us really ask ourselves, why? Why would you want to trade this kind of love for the world? Why? What's in it for the world? Disappointment? Our bodies are perishing? Christians, we have a hope, a hope that no one else has. No one, look, if no one hasn't put their faith and trust in Christ, they have no hope. We have a confident expectation that these things are going to come. These are the promises that God promised to all of his children. In verse 3 3. It reads that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It is essential to understand that hope is not just a feeling or an emotion, but a confident expectation of future events. You see, in Christianity, hope is the assurance that God will fulfill his promises, that believers will receive eternal life. This hope is not based on human emotions or circumstances based on the character and promises of God. Look, church, the the verse that we're looking at here in verse 3, it emphasizes that hope is purifying. It's purifying. The word purifies in the present tense indicating that hope is a continual process of, of cleansing and sanctification. 
This means that as believers place their hope in Christ, they will experience a progressive purification of their hearts and minds. This purification is not limited to external actions, but it also includes the inner motivations and desires of the heart. The connection between hope and purity is rooted in the character of God by us remaining in Christ. God is holy and pure and desires his children to be like him. When believers place their hope in Christ, they acknowledge that that he is our only, our only hope for salvation and that he is the source of all purity. As we remain in him, we bear fruit and demonstrate the purity of God in our lives. This is what God is commanding us to do. It's to share that hope to those who do not have no hope. By us going out there to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to call for repentance. Because there's going to be a day when Christ will return to save his children. And our job is to go out there to preach the word of God, to go out there to preach the gospel. Let us not live in fear or anxiety and all these other things that we make excuses of. God promised He promises, he's like, look, if you lack wisdom, ask, and I will give it to you. That's another aspect of God's love, right? So if I'm struggling to share the gospel, well, I need to ask God for wisdom. But also God's going to point to certain people in in the church to help us to be able to articulate the gospel accurately, There are people who are dying without Christ every single day. And if we just want to just hold this little light, this glimmer of light that we have in our hearts and not share with anybody, then we're doing it injustice. God has called us, or I should say, God has given us the message of reconciliation, which which, uh, is spoken about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a message of reconciliation to share it before those who who are not reconciled with God, those who are enemies of God. So I plead with you and I urge you to go out there and to share this hope. Because what Christ has in mind is that he wants everyone to come before him. He wants everyone to to be in heaven. Well, that is the desire, but it really comes down to the individual. They really want to place their hope and trust in him. But we should be praying that God will open up their hearts, just as God opened up the heart of Lydia in the book of Acts. We should be working hard. So with all I said, let's go to our Lord God in prayer. Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, for the hope that you've given us, Lord. And I just pray, Father, that that these words will not be easily taken away. That the seed that, that, that is being easily taken away by the birds... I pray, Father, that 
the hope that you have given us, Lord, that it will motivate us, really motivate our hearts to go out there and to share the gospel and to be able to, sh- to share your great love for, for us, for what you have shown us, that we also want to get want others to, to also receive as well. I don't want people to be ashamed at your coming. I want them to be standing in full confidence because why? Because they remain in you. I pray, Father, that when it comes to the saints, Lord, I pray, Father, that we do not easily tire or grow weary or be lazy. Lord, I just pray, Father, that you will just give a spirit of, 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 of some type of vigoration, of energy, some sort to, to, to keep them going. And I just pray for those who do not know you, Lord. I pray for their salvation, Lord. Because I want them to be able to experience your great and abundant and overflowing love. Lord, we thank you for tonight. Lord, we thank you for your message. We thank you, Lord, for your apostle John. And Lord, we just want to say, bless your name. And all of God's people say, amen.